Hey everybody, Jonathan Rogers here. Before we get started, I wanted to mention my new six-week online creative writing course called Writing with Caspian. Together, we'll read through Prince Caspian and figure out how C.S. Lewis works his particular kind of magic and how we can apply some of his principles and techniques to our own writing. It starts on February 2nd. You can find out more at thehabit.co slash Caspian. And if God has made a world that is intelligible, that he has invested beauty and goodness and truth in its very fabric, then our call is to read into the reality of things and to be receptive of him speaking through beauty and goodness and truth. Welcome to the Habit Podcast, conversations with writers about writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. Matthew Clark writes incredibly thoughtful and thought-provoking songs. Then he sings them all over America as he tours the country in a tricked-out band he calls Vandolph the White. He's also a podcaster. His podcast is 1,000 Words, Stories Along the Way. In each episode, he reads one of his carefully crafted essays about art and faith and beauty and imagination and, recently, apple pie. I commend this podcast to you. Matthew Clark's latest musical release is Beautiful Secret Life, a collection of 26 conversational songs about seeing the beauty in the ordinary. I commend that to you, too. Matthew Clark, thank you so much for being on the Habit Podcast. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Excited to be here. So can you give me a uh, just a uh, big picture of, of it seems like your work is very diverse, right? You, you've got a podcast and you've got a, and you make music and you right around in a, in a tricked out van that you call Vandoff the white. Yeah. Would tell them, and you write beautiful prose, by the way, even though, you know, we think of you as a singer songwriter. Um, I just love the, the, the prose essays that you write that become the basis of your uh, podcast, a thousand, 1000 words. Yeah. Thanks. So uh, tell me just what's the big picture here. What's, what's the over, what's the, yeah. What do you do? <laughs> <laughs> I'm always kind of trying to figure that out myself yeah. because you know, I feel like it ends up going in a lot of directions. But I, I think a, something that's, that's helped me connect a lot of that stuff is to, to imagine a sort of a bulb underground. And then you have that thing grows out of the ground and it splits off into branches. But everything is has a kind of central gift that it comes out of. And mm-hmm. um and maybe there are different buds on the on the bush, but I think of hospitality as this kind of bulb underground mm. that that sprouts out in different ways. And so kind of my personal, if you want to call it like a mission statement, is to make things that make room for people to meet Jesus. So a thing could be anything. It could be a meal, it could be a conversation, it could be a song, it could be a podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of how those things um, kind of all connect back to making a space where people can meet each uh-huh. other and then they can hopefully meet Jesus. Uh-huh. Um, well, and you tell me about your van, Vand off the White. Yeah, well, I got really. I mean, and, and how does that relate to, to your work and to your hospitality? Yeah. <laughs> um, well, mainly it's just hospitality for myself, so I can hang out. In a <laughs> Haven't you always wanted to just hang out in a van? Yes, actually. Yeah, I thought so. Uh, 
Well, I, I got really into tiny houses a few years uh-huh. ago. Really fascinated. You remember, I don't know if you ever did this as a kid. Did you like build little forts and little like yeah. uh, things that you could crawl inside? They were kind of small spaces. Yeah. And well, it was kind of, it was kind of like that same feeling of being a kid. And we used to, so I grew up on 25 acres. It was my dad's family's land that he eventually built a house house on. And there were these old, um, because it had been a farm, it kind of had these ridges, mm-hmm. you know? And mm-hmm. so if you, so it made these little ditches, but by now trees had grown up and there were these ditches in the woods uh-huh. and, and you could lay sticks across the top of them. And then you could crawl underneath them and, yeah. and sweep it out and set up a little piece of wood you found and made it, make a table and you could play underneath those. <laughs> so I always kind of love those little spaces. Yeah. And so building the van was kind of like that childhood fort building thing on steroids as an adult. It's like <laughs> bringing all the capability of and tools of adulthood. And yeah. Make an awesome fort in a van that you can take. <laughs> <laughs> And before we started recording, I was I was uh, asking, how do you um, make sure you have the books you need when you're riding all over the country in a van? And you said you've got a nice bookshelf in there. Yeah, well, part of the van, too, is if you're traveling a lot, everything is always changing. Yeah. And so I needed the first couple of times I went on an extended tour that was really stressful. I felt so dislocated, Mm -hmm. disoriented. And so I thought, well, I need to create a space that doesn't change. Mm. And that that space needs to be beautiful. It needs to be beautiful and it needs to feel, it needs to remind me what it is like to be a human. Yeah. And uh, I need to be able to get into that space no matter where I am and feel like a real person. And a bookshelf is like one of those things. <laughs> yeah. You know? Like just having books around and beautiful things. Yeah. Um, so I built a bookshelf that holds, I don't know, maybe 60, 70 books. Do you sit in the van and write or do you have to get out of the van and go somewhere else when you want to do some writing? Uh, I actually do sit in the van and write pretty often. Yeah. Um, unless it's just been a long time since I've seen another human. Mm-hmm. Then I'll go in a coffee shop just to have people around. Yeah. Yeah. And so people can see you writing. That's important. So that they know that I, this is what I do. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, all right. Well, I, I want to, I start to say I want to start. We've already started. But the next question I want to talk about is the idea of you. Um, you've got this, this podcast called 1000 Words. And um, in which you just read a, a, an essay um, and do a couple other things, but mostly you, you read, read an essay that you've written and, you, and then you also post the essay. And uh, I think those are great, by the way. I, I love what you're doing with that. And, um, but your most recent one, the one that was the end of season two, um, it's called The Radiant. Uh-huh. And uh, man, I just, I just, there was so much to love about that, it, about that, um, that little essay. I just want to talk about some of the things that, that you you bring up there because you you start with the idea of um, the contrast between the two wizards and the bad wizard whose name is Saruman. Saruman, thank you, and the good wizard whose name is Gandalf, mm-hmm. um, and um, and Saruman speaks 
dismissively of white light. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, tell me about that, but because he's, I guess he's, a, he's able to split light into its various colors. Right. And uh, Gandalf is more committed to um, light in its complete form. Uh, that's not split into colors. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, tell me about that. Tell me what. Let's just talk about that. <laughs> what's, what's what is um, because you're really talking about the difference between analysis and synthesis. Right. That's that's one of the things you're talking about. I shouldn't say you're really talking about, but that's one of the things that I found interesting is that there's a scientific approach to the world that that dissects, and there's. And, and there's certainly value in dissection. There's no question about that. And there's value in um, uh, analysis, uh, taking something apart into its constituent parts and seeing how it works. Yeah. Um, but the the work of of the artist tends to be uh, synthetic, bringing things together rather than uh, taking things apart. So right. Uh, and it, well, so Saruman is. You know he's a traitor, and he's he's going over to the side of Sauron, mm-hmm. and he's got to sort of justify that. He's got to yeah. explain uh, why his way is so, you know, smarty pants, <laughs> and uh, or smarty robe. You know, I'm sure yeah, right. he might have pants on under there. I don't know, <laughs> but uh, he says uh, his justification to Gandalf is is like is that Gandalf is missing the potential, like. Gandalf mm-hmm. is seeing the whole and he's saying, but you could, you can break these things apart and, and they can be much more useful to us. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and the analogy is light. And he says, uh, oh, well, light is just, white light is just a starting point. You can break it apart. And then, but so much of Tolkien's writing is about the idea of, of possession and possession becomes uh, appropriation, like being mm-hmm. able to use things however we want to, rather than seeing things, uh, seeing the world, seeing that it is a gift that's been given that Mm -hmm. we pay attention to and that we honor. And then that we recognize it as an invitation that God has given to participate in reality. But, but most of the modern imagination sees the world as just mere material. It's been reduced to mere material that can just be used however you want to use it. Yeah. To respect it or see any more meaning or glory in it. Uh, yeah. Gandalf says, he who breaks a thing in order to understand it has left the path of wisdom. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, and another is another recurring theme, I guess, in, in um, Tolkien and, or maybe I, I, sometimes I can't remember what's in Narnia and what's in Middle Earth, you know. But but the idea of of um, taking no this this is uh, uh, Lord of the Rings where he talks about you know the, uh, taking away things that you can't give back, right? To, when you take a life, oh yeah, we can't give life, and so to take a life is to take away something that we don't have the power to to give back, um, right? Which I think is another really helpful. Um, insight into into what uh, or a real a helpful guide right to to what we can what we can do and what we ought not do yeah well and that's a scary conversation to get into because I, you can get into kind of 
people talking about, is the God of the Old Testament different than the God of the New Testament? But one of the things a, a mentor of mine said was, um, it's very different. God's position is very different because he can give life back. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. he is not taking something that he doesn't have the power to return to someone. Yeah. Yeah. So it's very different from us. Um, one thing that came up in that, that essay was a reference to an older essay from the previous season. Yeah. Um, in which you talk about the, the, uh, an etymology that I wasn't familiar with. And that is that, um, a connection between the diabolical and the symbolical. And so that, that whereas um, uh, the idea of this symbolic is about bringing things together. Um, and I think maybe uh, it might also be fair to say pointing out connections that, that we have forgotten or that we you know, didn't realize were there between, between things, things that rhyme in the world, so to speak. Yeah. Um, and then diabolic, which of, of course, you know, uh, in in one in one regard, diabolical is you know derives from the word for devil. But but as you now I can't remember where you got this insight from, um, that that word the di- you know the diabolos you know comes from the idea of uh, if if sim- if the symbolic brings things together, the diabolic breaks things apart. Right, right. Um, well, and it's so, you know, we're so used to associating that word specifically with like devil, which right. which it is associated with a specific being. But the word literally means, yeah, to divide, to put asunder. Mm-hmm. And uh, you can hear it in the die part, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it means to separate or to cut in, into pieces. And, uh, and symbolic, like synthesis, means to bring mm-hmm. together, uh, which means to, which also I love the words uh, remember and dismember. Yeah. So you could you could use those yeah. words, dismember for diabolic and remember for symbolic, might be helpful. Yeah. Um, and so we've been dismembered from so much. We've been cut off from so much. And part of the work of God is that He's doing is to. Um, is to rejoin those things, is to to bring us back to himself. Yeah. And all that he's about. And so the work of the writer, the work of the artist, um, hopefully is to participate in that, right? Right, right. And and to pay attention to to um to discover those connections that are there. Mm-hmm. And that's that goes back to Saruman splitting the light. Um, rather than doing that, we want to do like what Gandalf does, and we want to pay attention to those rhymes in the world. <laughs> we want to pay attention to the way that God has woven reality together, and we want to pick up on those patterns yeah. and bring them out in the work that we do. Yeah, yeah, and I think in in um, in doing that, um, in participating in that. Regathering. I mean, it's so much of it is a matter of um, reminding people of, you know, the, and and saying saying for them things that they didn't know to say, but when they hear them, they say, "Oh yes, <laughs> that's that's right." You know, oh, that's one of the best feelings. That's one of my favorite things about reading Lewis, is when he says something, 
that you hadn't thought of, but it's just, it, it, it locks into place. It just like, it clicks. Yeah. Just right. yeah. You, oh, I should have known that. That's so right. You know. So how do you, uh, th- this is a, this may be too hard of a question to spring on somebody, but how do you, how do you do that? Right. I mean, it's, it's, it's really cool when you see it and we admire it and we see when other people do it for us, um, make those, um, connections that we didn't know were there, but in practical terms, any thoughts on how we, how we do that, how we, how we remind, I mean, the whole point is these are things that we've forgotten. How do you remember things that we've, that, that have been forgotten? Yeah. Um, well, that is hard, I, but I think going back to uh, this, only the lover sings this uh, Joseph Pieper book. Mm-hmm. I think one of the things he says is is we have to develop um, a, a habit of mm-hmm. contemplation, mm-hmm. And, and contemplation has the word temple in it. It means to go yeah. to the temple and yeah. to, and to uh, attend to the God in, of the temple. Mm-hmm. And so it's, and he talks about how leisure is not just is not a negative term. It's not a term that just means the absence of work. Mm-hmm. That leisure is a proactive, substantial term that means um, to show up and to proactively attend to mm-hmm. or behold yeah. God. And and he says, actually, art making is a form of contemplation, that when you make art, the portrait artist has to look at who has to look closest at a face? Somebody that's going to paint a face. Yeah. And so the artist has to really pay attention. Um, but uh, then if contemplation is that, uh, maybe I could link that to uh, something that D.C. Schindler said. There's a great book called Love and the Postmodern Predicament by okay. D.C. Schindler. I don't know that book. Oh, it's so good. Um most books I learn about from Ken Myers on Mars Hill Audio Journal. Yeah. Uh, he's he's kind of my yeah. book list provider. Yeah. But he made a point to say that intelligence, intelligence is not something you have or don't have. Mm-hmm. Intelligence is a practice. Yes. And the word means, uh, intus means what it sounds like. It means into, and legere means... Um, is where we get legibility from. Yeah. So Laguerre means to read. Uh huh. So intus Laguerre means to read into the reality of things. Yeah. So intelligence, in other words, is similar to contemplation, mm-hmm. similar to beholding, similar to looking closely and paying attention. And if God has made a world that is intelligible, yeah that he has invested beauty and goodness and truth in its very fabric in the very being of the world, then our call is to read into the reality of things, to practice contemplation and to look closely at it and to be receptive of him um, speaking through beauty and goodness and truth. Yeah. That's so good. Um, Mostly, in so many ways, the writer and the artist's job is to just slow down and pay attention to things that that the rest of us are too busy to pay attention to. Right. Right. It's it's not that, you know, it's it's not that the the artist has necessarily a special vision that nobody else can see. Although sometimes when you see what some people write, you think 
that person has a special vision that I could have sat there a long time and never seen that. But it is so much a matter of just slowing down and saying, I'm going to slow down for people who aren't slowing down, who maybe can't slow down Uh depending on their situation. Um, But, but as you said, I mean, I I love what you're saying about the, the, uh, the, the idea of, of uh, intellect, um, the the angels are intellectual beings as distinct from rational beings. If I have my ancient you know um, philosophy sorted out, but they they know by they look and they see what's intelligible. Hmm. Um, whereas human knowledge sometimes has to you know one one thing human beings can do is reason things out. Mm-hmm. Um, and and we've come to associate intelligence with reason, whereas as you said the the in its original sense, intellectual knowledge was just seeing what's true. And, and, you know, the idea that, that reality is something that's outside us, not something that we cook up inside our, our brains. Yeah. Yeah. That's so good. Um, Jeremy Begbie talks about the romantics. He's in in a book called resounding the truth. Um, And Begbie is a, is a musician. Mm-hmm. And he became a believer, and he became a theologian, and he's a teacher. He actually was Malcolm's one of Malcolm's professors, I think. Malcolm Geitz professor. Yeah, he yeah. did his doctorate, but um, yeah, he was talking about the Romantics, and he said, "Well, after you had the Enlightenment, which kind of reduced everything to materialism and got rid of God, mm-hmm. um, then the Romantics came in, and they they just couldn't shake the feeling that there was something wrong with that." <laughs> and they but so how do you put meaning back into the world and the romantics took it upon themselves to sort of impose meaning mm-hmm. on a meaningless nature mm-hmm. um, and and that's where we get the idea of originality hmm. because you have to become the origin of meaning for the world yeah yeah that is not really what originality means what originality means is to return to your origin <laughs> so it's some contemplation um, or to be remembered to God yeah. is, is what the artist is actually called to, is to pay that kind of attention, to listen. Oh, that's great. I think it's, I mean, it's so important to remember that it's not our job to make meaning. <laughs> well, and that's a huge relief too, right? Yeah, right. That's a relief to me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, well, uh, I'm glad you brought up um, Joseph Pieper and only only the lover sings. I'm, I love that book, and uh, and so um, let's. Uh, I, I just want to talk about a few ideas that I think are relevant to to, to the things that you you've been talking about, uh, and um, and so again, I, I think we're just going to be. Um, it, it, in this one or two quotations, I wanted to, to trot out from, from Pieper. Um, I think this is just a way of, of uh, rearticulating some things you've already been touching, touching on. Um, and I, I want to hear you react to this since, since I know that you're a, a fan of, of this uh, book, Only the Lover Sings. Um, Pieper says, one of the fundamental human experiences is the realization that the truly that the truly great and uplifting things in life come about perhaps not with, not without our efforts, but nevertheless, not through those efforts. Mm-hmm. Rather, we will attain them only if we can accept them as free gifts. Yeah. The, the best things in life 
It's not that we don't have any response, you know, that, that our effort is completely irrelevant. But on the other hand, they, you know, if, if we're not receiving them as gifts, we're not really going to get them with our own efforts. Right. Um, somebody said that, I wish I could remember where it came from, but somebody talked about the whole world as being a kind of proposal. <laughs> wow. <laughs> that the job of humanity is to to accept the proposal. Oh, wow. <laughs> I love it. Kind of like the world is God holding out a bouquet on one <laughs> ring on one knee, you know? And um, I love that idea that, well, it actually, uh, it may have been Shmemon, Alexander Shmemon in For mm-hmm. the Life of the World. And he talks about man is a hungry being uh-huh. and, uh, and God offers, God offers the, the world. And our job is to to basically just affirm, to say, Amen. It is so good. I agree with you, yeah. Lord. Yeah. Receive it. And so that our position is really to stand before this incredibly gracious, generous proposal and just say, Yeah, I love you too. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Um, but but yeah, like we do have a, a we're in a position of response, though. Yeah. And so we do participate in that. Um, we're not overwhelmed, in other words. Like, God doesn't just knock us down. Um, he knocks on the door, but he doesn't break down the door. Mm-hmm. And and so we have to kind of reach for the knob and, and, and welcome him, which is such a bizarre thing, that we're in a position to show hospitality to God. <laughs> that's wild, isn't it? Or he puts himself in a position yeah, right. of vulnerability. He, he, that's not necessarily his situation, but he chooses to make himself um, vulnerable. Yeah. We can welcome him and love him in return or not. Yeah. Yeah. How does that, um, I mean, of course, this is a podcast about writing, mm-hmm. um, not, not just a theological Mm-hmm. podcast um the things you just the things we're talking about here what what do they have to do with with writing and and art making nothing no, okay I'm just, I'm just, <laughs> <laughs> well i think that well, i think that uh sometimes when i'm trying to write a song for instance i'm just i get in this unhelpful place where I'm trying to force this thing. I'm, I'm demanding that the song mm. show up. Yeah. I'm demanding that the words do what I want them to do or the music does what I want it to do. And it's so bizarre that that doesn't work. There's something about <laughs> life and personhood. And the, the, I love the phrase that you use the world God has made. Yeah. Um, that does not respond well to, to demandingness, to force and pressure, that it responds well to, uh, to care and patience. Yeah. yeah. So I've, I've found that uh, sometimes when I get to that place of where a song is not cooperating because I'm being a jerk about it, but <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I, I need to back off or I need to say, maybe I'm trying to make this, story do something that it doesn't really do and I haven't taken the time to get to know the story well enough or the um 
the characters. I haven't gotten to know them well enough to let them actually be who they are. Yeah. You know? Yeah. There was a great documentary. I think it's called Rivers and Tides. Rivers and Tides. It's, there's a sculptor, and I'm not thinking of his name right now. He's a Scottish sculptor, and it's this very quiet, wonderful documentary. I think it was made in the early 2000s. But he's stacking these stones. He's making this kind of egg-shaped sculpture on the beach. Uh-huh. He goes out into nature and he makes these, just from found items, he makes these sculptures. And he stacks these stones and they're balanced and they fall down. And he stacks uh-huh. them again and they fall down. And he goes through this four or five times and the thing just keeps falling apart. And then and then by the end of the day, he finally gets it. And he says, uh, he says I feel like I'm just getting to know these stones. Hmm. <laughs> I'm just getting to understand how they work, but it's taken me all day. I'm finally able to stack one that doesn't fall apart, you know? Yeah. And um, so that same kind of attentiveness and care comes into play in the creative process. Yeah. Um, another thing that Peeper talks about that I think is related to all this, I mean, it related to the, um, um, the general tone of things we've been talking about is that the role of remembering in, um, in art making and in what we present to, to our reader or audience or whatever. And so um, um, the, again, you you mentioned originality um, or, or the romantic notion of originality that, that somehow is, is created inside my head somewhere and then I present to the world. Right. Um, whereas I, I think a, a more, a, a very freeing way of thinking about these things is to say, I'll, my job here is to remember and to help other people remember something that we've forgotten. You know, I, I love uh, Marilyn Robinson. I heard her give a talk recently and she said, um, you know, one way she knows what to write about is she, she looks for, for things that are simultaneously beautiful and forgotten or beautiful. And what, what was it? She said, um, beautiful and unacknowledged. Yeah. You know, and, and I really think, um, that's a very different thing from saying, I've got to rack my brain to come up with something that is original or, or, or nobody's ever thought before in the history of the world, but rather, I am in, you know, I'm going to remember. And then, and as we, as we write, as we make art, um, we're not necessarily, we're probably not presenting things that everybody already knows and remembers, right? I mean, it's, it's things that they've forgotten. And so it, it feels fresh because not because nobody's ever said this or thought of before, but because we've forgotten it. And, uh, and, you know, and I also think this is relevant to what you, where you started with the idea of hospitality, you know, to, to invite people into a remembering. Uh-huh. That seems, that seems like a helpful way of thinking about the artist's work to me. Yeah. Well, I want, it makes me think of the way, a, the way a human is made is like you come into the world and you pop up ideally right you pop up in the middle of of a context you're contextualized yeah. you're yeah. sort of embraced by a mom and a dad 
and maybe some siblings and some extended family. And so you've got this immediately from the get-go, um, you're, you're, you're sort of swaddled by other people. Mm-hmm. And if we're made in the image of the Trinity, that makes a lot of sense. Um, that we understand ourselves with in relationship to other people. And a friend of mine pointed out that uh, God reveals himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And in order to be a father, you have to have a son. In order to be a son, you have to have mm-hmm. a father. So even the members mm-hmm. of the Trinity are sort of communicated and named relationally. Yeah. With relationship to one another. Yeah. And, um, and so art as a kind of hospitality and a kind of remembering, I think one of the things it can do is help recontextualize us. It can yeah. help bring us back into contact with other people and help relocate us. Cause I think we're very dislocated people. Mm-hmm. You know, I think, yeah. I think in our society, we're so terrified because we're just in this kind of free fall. Yeah. And uh, there's no context. There's no story. All that has been thrown out. Yeah. And, um, but to be brought back in front of a face and to look into a face and see someone seeing you. Yeah. Uh, it's so, um, it's such a gift. And I think art can help create those kind of opportunities for people. Yeah. It says, it says to the, to the reader, to the audience, you thought you were alone, but turns out you're not. Turns out you were part of a family and a context. And, you know, being born into a family and into a context um, also means we can um, know things we never knew we knew. And we can be reminded of things that we didn't know we had forgotten. Or we can, and we can also forget things that we never actively knew, right? I mean, I, I remember once I, I um, uh, went to visit a, a great uncle I didn't, I'd never met before. And he you know, lived off somewhere. And when he asked the blessing, it was the same blessing that my father oh. asked. And this man I'd never, I'd never laid eyes on before. And, and he asked the same blessing that my father and got it from the same place my father got, you know, but, but I'd never, it, there, there was something awakening about that to me. It felt like I, you know, a connection to somebody I didn't know I was connected with. And, uh, that's so sweet. That reminds, for some <laughs> yeah. reason that, that reminds me of Theoden when he's, he's dying in the movie, at least. And he says, I know your face. Mm-hmm. I know your face. Eowyn is bending over him, you know? Yeah. But to, but to what to recognize like something of your life in someone else's life. That's beautiful. Yeah. And I, you know, also this idea of being born into a family, uh-huh. you know, what, what teenager, you know, has, I think every teenager at some point has said, I didn't ask to be born, you know, as, as, as a sort of um, uh, reproach to their family. But that's also one of the great theological insights <laughs> that you can have is I didn't ask to be born. This whole thing's a gift. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and to give an account of that, right. To, to, to give an account of the giftedness of the world that we found ourselves in. Yeah. I think that's all. If you can do that as a, as a writer, as a songwriter, as an artist, that's a pretty high calling. And, um, yeah. And we don't need originality. 
Well, and it takes takes me back to something that Chesterton said about gratitude being the highest form of thought. Yeah. If gratitude is the highest form of thought, then then art making is also this form of uh, or this practice that always leads us back to a kind of gratitude. Yeah. Where we're recognizing uh, God's presence and and the givenness, the giftedness of things, mm-hmm. and we're responding to that. Um, and that, and that that's uh, even even if we're, I was thinking about this the other day because I was writing a song about uh, the phrase "How long, right? How mm-hmm. long, oh Lord?" I've been reading Eugene Peterson's book on Revelation, but even the even if you're lamenting, there's there's a weird kind of undercurrent of gratitude and acknowledgement even in that because "How long" is a kind of prayer that has faith in it. Yeah. Right. It's like I wouldn't be asking this if I didn't think you weren't listening or it didn't matter to you or you you couldn't do anything about it. Yeah. So I'm ask I'm I'm asking you this question, Lord, in faith and even in gratitude because I think that you're going to show up somehow and it'll be the right way. You know. Yeah. That's so good. All right, man. We're about to run out of time. I can't believe uh, this has gone by so fast. So. I got to ask you, who are the writers who make you want to write? Oh, well, I'm going to say the the obvious stuff. Of course, I I go back to Tolkien again and again and again. Uh, But I just kind of grew up on Tolkien. My mom read to me before I could read to myself. (laughs) And I kept going. Did she read The Lord of the Rings or just The Hobbit when you couldn't read? read The Hobbit and she started reading The Lord of the Rings. And Mm -hmm. then I got old enough that I picked it up Uh and kept going. Um, and then, uh, I love, uh, I love Amy Lee's writing. Do you uh-huh. know Amy Lee? Yeah. Um, Colorado person, Colorado person, Anselm person. She's written yeah. a few, uh, she writes for the cultivating project that I also uh-huh. write for. And Lancia, who runs the cultivating project, um, is someone that just through her encouragement, she has really been one who just has spoken into me and given me a lot of helped me believe that I could write. Yeah. Yeah. I want to get Lancy. I need to get Lancy on this podcast. Yeah, that would be fun. And then Malcolm has made a huge difference, especially mm-hmm. with regard to poetry, because I had some traumatizing experiences with mean poetry <laughs> teachers in college. <laughs> you know, really terrified. Yeah, he kind of broke through that for me and helped me come back around to it. Can you uh, put your finger on specifically um, how he made you feel better about the world of poetry? <laughs> well, yeah, there's a funny story. We were out at Laity Lodge at a retreat, and he was speaking. Uh-huh. And he was about to speak on um, Theseus's speech in uh, um, Midsummer Night's Dream. Midsummer Night's Dream about how imagination bodies forth. And uh, and he was going to talk about Seamus Heaney's Rainstick poem. Okay. But anyway, before he started any of that, he said, "Look, I'm a I'm an Anglican uh, priest, and part of my job back home in the diocese is that I'm on the like uh, spiritual warfare team or whatever it's called. It has an <laughs> official name." And he said, "So you know, like we have to learn these prayers of exorcism and stuff like that." And we're, wow. everybody in the room was like, "All right, what's going on?" <laughs> And he says, I want to pray a prayer of exorcism for us before we get started talking about poetry. 
because I know that almost everybody in this room has the little haunting voice of the terrible, mean English teacher. Really? And he said, and I want to pray that the Lord would cast out that discouraging voice that makes you feel like poetry is some something you're not good enough to participate in. Wow. And he said, because it's such a gift and words are such a gift. And somebody has tried to kind of diabolically cut you off. Wow. Putting you asunder from these good things. And so he he literally prayed a prayer of exorcism for anything that was holding us back from uh, really. Yeah. And uh but what what was amazing about it, um, I thought it like, okay, this is kind of weird, maybe kind of funny. But as he was praying, I started crying. Yeah. I kind of broke down. It was and and I was not expecting that. And I realized that I had all this fear and baggage that was built up and I really wasn't all that aware of it. Yeah. And the Lord started working on that with me and and kind of breaking through a lot of that. So that is not the answer I was expecting to my question. (laughs) No. Yeah. That's, that's great. I love it. All right, man. Well, Matthew Clark, thank you so much. This has been great. Um, Let's talk again soon. Yeah. I loved it. Thanks so much. This podcast is brought to you by The Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. And all our podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our members. To learn more about us, visit rabbitroom.com. And to become a member, rabbitroom.com slash donate. Special thanks as well to Taylor Linhart for letting us use her song Diamonds as the theme music for season three of The Habit Podcast. You can learn more about Taylor and follow her work at taylorlinhart.com. The Habit membership is a library of resources for writers by me, Jonathan Rogers. More importantly, The Habit is a hub of community where like-minded writers gather to discuss their work and give each other a little more courage. Find out more at thehabit.co.